This is me reading the introduction chapter to my new book written with my friend Tony Kynaston, The Psychopath Economy. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world's in a bit of a fucking mess right now. Our political class has failed us. Our business leadership has failed us. So is the leadership of our religions, our media, our education system. It's pretty hard sometimes not to just give up, tune out, smoke some weed, eat a shit ton of easy carbs and binge Netflix, which is perhaps precisely what our leaders want us to do. Give up, stop paying attention, accept our impotence, let them get on with fucking things up. Have you ever wondered how things got this bad and what, if anything, you can do about it? Well, if you have, then this book is for you. The main premise of this book is simple. The world is in a fucking mess because we put psychopaths in charge. We will argue that a relatively small group of psychopaths usually end up running things. Not always, not in every situation, but enough of the time for it to be damaging. Depressing? Yes. Is it always a bad thing? Not always, but usually, yes, it is a bad thing. Now, before you get too depressed, we close the book by suggesting a range of things we can do about it. But don't skip to the last chapter now. Be patient. We'll get there. Now, even though this might be the way things have always been, a small group of psychopaths running the world, the concept of psychopaths is actually relatively new. It was first developed in 1941 by American psychiatrist Hervey M. Cleckley. Before then, most people just thought the ones who were screwing up the world were evil or possessed by demons or some other quaint, antiquated idea of human motivation. Today, however, thanks to modern science, we're all somewhat familiar with the concept of psychopaths. Unfortunately, many people assume psychopaths only form the ranks of serial killers and ranting dictators. Your Ted Bundy, your Joseph Stalin, Donald Trump, etc. They don't think of them as your local priest, your company director, your local politician, or your local police captain. It sometimes takes a while before scientific ideas permeate into the public consciousness. What needs to be better understood is the concept that psychopaths often end up running and influencing many of our major and minor organizations and institutions because that's what they are designed to do. The majority of people have pretty simple needs and wants. They just want to live their lives, fall in love, bang out a few kids, get laid on a regular basis, eat some delicious food, have a drink or a joint responsibly, watch a few great movies, listen to some music, read some books, see some sights, and die happy surrounded by the people they love. Is that too much to ask? Well, some people, however, want to own everything. They want to control everything. Enough is never enough. They have a winner-takes-all attitude, dog-eat-dog, Law of the jungle, kill or be killed. People like that are often going to end up on top because the rest of us let them. 
we don't want to be on top enough to do the things that need to be done. We can't sleep at night if we have to lie, cheat, steal and fuck our way to the top. But psychopaths don't lose a wink of sleep. On the contrary, they sleep better knowing they are hashtag winning. And they get on top and stay on top by fighting a war. It's not the war on terror, the war on drugs, or even the war on Christmas. There's a much more significant war going on, and you're unlikely to hear about it in the media or from your government. It's not a war that gets talked about, because like Fight Club, the first rule of this war is that you don't talk about it. If the general public became too aware of it, it would stop being effective. Instead, our leaders try to distract us by focusing our attention on the other wars, real and imaginary, with televised sports, reality shows, presidential tweets, and celebrity gossip. But they won't talk about this other war because it isn't in their best interests. This other war has been going on in its present form since the rise of modern democracies, and billions of dollars are spent on it every year yet it gets almost zero coverage in the nightly news or from our elected leaders. What I'm talking about is the war on your mind. It's a battle to control how you think, feel and act regarding the political and economic issues of the day. It's being fought every day on the battlegrounds of television, talkback radio, newspapers, films, magazine, books and now the internet. The reason for this war on your mind is the oldest reason of all, power. Who's leading the war? The psychopaths. In every society since the dawn of time, there has been a relatively small percentage of the population, some psychiatrists suggest around 1%, who feel it is their destiny to control as much of the money and power in that society as possible. That's the primary goal of their lives, and they'll do anything it takes to achieve it. Fight, steal, murder, lie, cheap, bribe, fucking burn. Sometimes, all at the same time, I'm thinking about Genghis Khan in his prime. There are, the 1% are the way they are because something's wrong with their brains, and they're either born that way, a psychopath, or something happens to them when they're young kids that makes them that way, a sociopath. We'll get into the details later. They will sacrifice their loved ones and their friends to end up on top. And most people aren't built that way. We're more interested in living simple lives, raising a family, enjoying a weekend, smelling the roses. And this just makes it easier for the power-hungry people, the 1%, to hack and slash their way to the top. And it's always been this way. I've spent the last 15 years recording hundreds of hours of podcasts about some of the great men of history. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt. And one of the questions I'm always asking myself is, was this guy a psychopath? In centuries gone past, the 1% often ended up as kings and queens, Warlords, emperors, popes and cardinals, prophets and lords, dukes, the landed gentry. And there wasn't much that the masses could do about it. They just accepted it as the way things are or how the gods intended it to be. They stayed in their class, in their poverty, and just tried to survive. The nobility, a fancy name for the richest 1% and their descendants, 
fought for power amongst themselves, with the other 99% quite often finding themselves as battle fodder. However, since the rise of modern mass media in the 20th century, it's become harder for the 1% to get away with certain kinds of behaviour. Even though they may still control more money and power than the rest of society, there are always 99 of us to every one of them, so they need to play their cards carefully. Gone are the days when they had private armies and fortified castles to hide in. The revolutions in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries were examples of what can happen when the majority of people feel too oppressed by a wealthy minority. The Bourbons and their fellow aristocrats in France, the Romanovs and their friends in Russia, Batista and his buddies in Cuba, the French in Indochina, provided all too real examples of the dangers of flaunting exorbitant wealth while the people starve. Now, of course, the 1% weren't going to just give up their wealth and power. They had to find new ways of staying in control of the masses. So to avoid revolutions, the 1% learned to manipulate how the 99% think and feel, so they can continue to control immense wealth and power without focused opposition from the masses. So the 1% have been manipulating our thinking with propaganda and distraction theatre since we were born. And it's been going on so long that many of us probably aren't even very conscious of what's going on. It's just part of the background noise that we've grown up with. It's a bit like the laugh track on a sitcom. It's always been there, telling us when to laugh and what to think, how to vote, and why we should go to war, what to focus on, and what to ignore. Most of us are so used to it, we don't even notice, let alone think much about it, and that's precisely what the 1% are counting on. They're counting on the fact that you'll accept their conditioning without questioning it or fighting it. They're counting on the fact that the average person is too tired after working a long day or feeling just too helpless to do anything to take back control of their thinking. They're counting on us just sitting in front of the television and letting it wash over us every night and every day for the rest of our lives. They'll tell us how to think, how to vote, what to buy, and constantly keep us scared about the enemy du jour who is coming to destroy our way of life, looming diseases, natural disasters, and our financial future. And therefore, the psychopaths end up powerful and wealthy, in control of the engines of our economies, and we call them the capitalists because they control most of the capital. Let me share a quote from the man that Time magazine once declared their person of the century as he neatly sums up the primary premise of this book. Private capital tends to become concentrated in few hands, partly because of competition among the capitalists and partly because technological development and the increasing division of labour encourage the formation of larger units of production at the expense of smaller ones. The result of these developments is an oligarchy of private capital, the enormous power of which cannot be effectively checked even by a democratically organised political society. This is true since the members of legislative bodies are selected by political parties, largely financed or otherwise influenced by private capitalists who, for all practical purposes, separate the electorate from the legislature. 
The consequence is that the representatives of the people do not, in fact, sufficiently protect the interests of the underprivileged sections of the population. Moreover, under existing conditions, private capitalists inevitably control, directly or indirectly, the main sources of information, press, radio, education. It is thus extremely difficult, and indeed in most cases quite impossible, for the individual citizen to come to objective conclusions and to make intelligent use of his political rights. Who do you think said that? Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Vladimir Lenin, Noam Chomsky? Not even close. This is actually a quote from Albert Einstein. Now, I was shocked and surprised in my early 20s when I first read that quote. I had up until that time, believed that capitalism was a benevolent force for good and that Western democracies were free, fair, and by the people for the people. The fact that one of the most celebrated intellects of the 20th century cast doubt on capitalism rattled me. Of course, being a brilliant physicist doesn't mean you're necessarily right about everything, so I decided to learn more about what makes the world tick to try to get to the bottom of things and find out if I agreed with Albert. As it turns out, I now do. This isn't to suggest that capitalism is rotten to the core and hasn't produced some positive effects on lifting the standard of living for millions of people around the world. Of course it has. However, I don't think it's a binary situation. Capitalism doesn't have to be either all good or all bad. The same is true, by the way, of socialism and communism. They all lie on a spectrum. As I live in a country that is a capitalist democracy, I think it's vital to understand the weaknesses as well as the strengths of our socioeconomic model. And that's what this book is about. This book presents a working model for understanding how the forces of capitalism keep the majority of the population distracted, broke, scared, and politically disempowered. I'll try to explain using a simple framework of conjoined interests how capitalism allows a small number of influential and potentially psychopathic individuals to maintain control over the rest of the population, creating a series of rippling negative effects that might be in our best interests as a society to avoid. I'll attempt to provide a logical explanation for why we regularly hear stories about corporations, governments, and religions making horrible decisions that damage the lives of individuals, families, the environment, and economies, and try to provide a method for empowering each of us to recalibrate our own lives, taking back control of our finances, our minds, and the lives of our families and societies. Having a new working model to interpret the behaviours and actions of significant organisations, be they corporations, governments or religious, might enable us to avoid the pitfalls of life in a modern economy and hopefully build a safer, more sustainable and fairer world for us, our children and the global population of our distant brothers and sisters. Hardly a month goes by when we aren't presented with evidence that another influential organisation has led us astray in one way or another. They lied about WMD in Iraq. They lied about Vietnam, about child molestation in the ranks of priests, bishops and cardinals, about the cause of the global financial crisis, 
about recording our private telephone calls and reading our emails, about hacking our voicemails, about manipulation of election results, about deleting their private emails, about their dealings with Russia, about promises they made in their last election campaign which were broken as soon as they got into power. The list often seems endless. When someone in the past has proven to be a habitual liar, would you implicitly trust everything they say in the future? Unfortunately, that's the situation we now find ourselves in when it comes to governments, corporations, intelligence agencies, religious organizations, and media companies in Western democracies. If someone has lied to you repeatedly in the past, isn't it natural to keep a healthy distrust about everything they say afterwards? Does it make you a conspiracy theorist to suggest that these organizations might not always be telling us the truth about their actions and statements? Today, perhaps more than ever before, we have proof that the powers that be are deceiving us. Edward Snowden's revelations that Western intelligence agencies are attempting to manipulate and control online discourse with extreme tactics of deception and reputation destruction using what they call the four Ds, deny, disrupt, degrade, deceive, to mislead the general public and destroy not only the efforts of political activists, but also their personal reputations, should cause even the most conservative member of the public to reconsider what kind of democracy and how much of it we have. Too often when such behaviour is revealed, when companies are caught dumping toxic waste, or when the Vatican gets an average of one credible rape complaint a day, or when politicians are caught misleading the public, the suggestion is usually that it's either the behaviour of a few bad eggs or that someone made an unfortunate mistake. Chalk it up to bad intel. This few bad eggs or bad intel theory of understanding the causes of organisational malfeasance is, I think, another deliberate attempt to mislead us. While it might be convenient to lay the blame for this kind of behaviour at the feet of a few bad eggs, the aim of this book is to demonstrate that on the contrary, this kind of deliberate misleading of the public is the natural outcome of the culture of significant organizations of all flavors, business, religious, and political, being run by a relatively small group of psychopaths. The bad eggs model is used to distract us from the truth that this kind of terrible behavior is actually a natural result of psychopathic organizational cultures, and we should expect it. That isn't to suggest that all significant organizations conduct themselves this way, or to imply that all organizations are inherently psychopathic. On the contrary, organized efforts by significant groups of people are central to any significant undertaking. What I do want to suggest is that organizations are often susceptible to making decisions that have negative public outcomes because their interests often don't overlap directly with the interests of the general population, and that the kind of person who ends up running a significant organization is often the sort who is more than happy to make decisions that will increase his own wealth, even if it requires hurting others. Adopting this working model of understanding the behavior of organizations will allow us to better protect ourselves from their more dangerous impulses because we will be expecting it, 
not allowing it to take us by surprise over and over again. And by exploring the interconnected interests of governments, corporations and religions, as suggested by Einstein, we will appreciate why they often seem to act in concert without requiring any kind of cigarette-smoking-man level of conspiracy. We will also explore the kinds of personal behaviours that organisations tend to encourage, how they map conveniently to those that come naturally to psychopaths, and how those two things are connected. Once you make the conceptual leap from bad eggs to understanding that it is often in the best self-interest of organisations to deceive us, it fundamentally changes the way you interpret the daily news, and suddenly things start to make a lot more sense. If you've ever struggled to understand why people in power can do such immoral and destructive things, I think this model of the psychopath economy will help provide an explanation. By the end of this book, you'll understand that you are being deceived by organizations on a regular basis and that it isn't a case of a few bad eggs, but precisely what you should expect from organizations and the psychopaths who often end up running them. Over the course of the next 11 chapters, we're going to explore 11 ideas to help us establish a framework for understanding the basis of the psychopath economy. One, the primary objective of organizations is to survive and grow. Two, when faced with a choice, we should therefore expect organizations to prioritize their own survival over other objectives, including ethical and environmental concerns. Three, the people who thrive in organizations will be those whose ethics map to the primary objectives of the organization. Four, People whose personal objectives and values don't map closely to those of the organization, either won't get employed there in the first place, will get removed from the organization, or will remove themselves from the organization. Five, people whose personal values map closely to the organization's objectives stand the best chance of rising to the top. Six, one of the primary objectives of wealthy people, aka the elite, is to protect and increase their wealth. Seven, to protect their status, we should expect the elite to use their wealth to try to manipulate the system. Eight, organizations and the elite want to protect the status quo, political and economic, because it is working for them. Nine, the general public desire significant changes to the political and economic status quo, but this runs counter to the interests of the elite. 10. As we've been lied to many times by those in power, it is entirely rational to assume they are deceiving us today. And 11. When traditional mechanisms of control fail, the elite will turn to other means. Well, that concludes the introductory chapter to the book, The Psychopath Economy. If you'd like to pre-order a copy or support the publication of the book, please go to bit.ly bit.ly slash psychopath economy quite frankly just google psychopath economy and go to the publishizer link uh, that's where we're running our publishing campaign and uh, help us out the more copies that we can sell uh, in pre-orders the better chance we'll get of finding a publisher who wants to help us take it to market thanks